This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Hello, listeners. We're back today with another episode of Condopedia. Today, I have a very special guest. I'm talking with Nicole Robinson, our article student, about compliance applications. We'll get to talking about what compliance applications are. But uh, first, I want to ask you, Nicole, uh, how are you doing? Uh, great. Thanks for having me, David. We, we're recording this just after Christmas, but before New Year's. Um, did you have a good Christmas? I did. It was great. Nice and quiet. How about you? Yeah, same here. Quiet. Um, before Ontario locked down, I think on Boxing Day, uh, we did go out for a dinner at a restaurant one last time. Oh, I got it in there. <laughs> on, on the Christmas Eve. So, Nicole, firstly, how did you get into condo law in the first place? Oh, great question. Really by luck, actually. I was a legal assistant uh, when I first got into condominium law because I was transferred in uh, to cover a new position um, to support two lawyers in the condominium law group when the team at DHA was part of a larger law firm. I really wasn't sure what to expect about condominium law. It was sort of this mysterious group that nobody knew what they did. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised as soon as I started uh, with how exciting or interesting the work is and the great people we get to work with here. So what is it, I guess, the area or aspect of Kona Law that is most interesting to you? Um, what's most interesting is that it just keeps getting more interesting. There's always something new that comes up, new intersections, new it issues um, that I didn't think of before or that I haven't seen before. So as a result, um, in this area, I'm always learning and growing and I'm never bored for sure. Um, another aspect that I really appreciate is, again, the people I get to work with and being part of a team that I feel is helping people um, that sometimes can be um, going through very long and trying journeys um, and to be in their corner, so to speak, uh, is very rewarding. Well, that's wonderful. Um, we're really happy to have you. Um, so we're going to talk about compliance applications. In other words, the procedure when dealing with residents that are not complying with condominiums governing documents. And we're going to contextualize this discussion through a recent, and I may say, well-known court proceeding that happened in BC. Um, for our listeners, you'll see that I've linked a news article to the specific proceeding in our show notes. Now let's talk about the case. Um, so the name of the case is the Owners Strata Plan VR812V MLU. It's a case from British Columbia. Uh, Nicole, could you give us a quick rundown of what the case was about? Yes, for sure. Um, this ultimately became a saga of four published decisions. Uh, proceedings first started in 2017. And again, uh, I believe, David, you said we'll have links um, to the decision in the notes for the show. So um, the unit owner's name is Emily Yu. And this matter uh, was about misuse violations of the strata's rental, pet, and occupancy, occupancy load bylaws. And again, um, I'm sure you're all familiar that um, the condominium corporations are called strata corporations in British Columbia, just in case there's any confusion there. Uh, the owner 
in this case was renting out her unit as an Airbnb, interestingly named Oasis Hostel. The strata had passed bylaws that prohibited the renting out of units as Airbnbs in 2016. Interestingly, the bylaws stipulated that Ms. Yu could rent out her unit to a maximum of six individuals for at least six months and with the board's consent to this arrangement, which could not be unreasonably refused. However, um, the Oasis Hostel, um, which was a three-bedroom townhouse, um, which Ms. Yu started renting approximately May 2016, was well beyond that occupancy load. Uh, she was renting upwards of 20 short-term rentals at a time with 15 beds in the unit. So um, this is an extreme example of exceeding those limits placed in the bylaws. The City of North Vancouver inspected the Oasis Hostel and found it violated various regulations and bylaws. North Vancouver issued a notice to Ms. Yu and required her to stop the non-compliant conduct. Ms. Yu also violated um, pet bylaws at the Strata, um, which prohibited pets, not all together, but uh, they limited each unit to a maximum of one dog. Other pets were a non-issue. Ms. Yu, however, had two dogs, um, which she ultimately was able to keep two, but she also advertised her unit as a pet sitting service. At the Civil Resolution Tribunal, this is the first step for compliance matters in BC. Um, the tribunal ordered Ms. Yu to comply with the strata's bylaws and awarded various costs and monies to the strata. Ms. Yu decided to appeal the civil resolution tribunal decision, and the appeal was dismissed in its entirety at the BC Supreme Court. The BC Supreme Court, as an aside, is the same level as the Superior Court we have in Ontario. Funny how provinces can be different in that way. Um, despite the court having found that Ms. Yu was in breach of the Strata's bylaws, Ms. Yu never stopped in her non-compliant conduct. Uh, the Strata then had to enforce the order. The BC court found Ms. Yu to be in contempt of, her, of the original order on October 24, 2018, and the court fined Ms. Yu $5,000, but didn't find it appropriate to order the sale of her unit at that time. In late 2019, however, Ms. Yu was again back in court. By this point, Ms. Yu had been ordered by the court to pay costs in excess of $50,000. And she also failed to pay the $5,000 fine until the very last minute, right before further contempt proceedings were brought. The court then ordered the next steps to be taken determined to determine what land uh, would be liable to be sold. So despite these multiple court findings, against Ms. Yu uh, and the cease and desist letters from the city, Ms. Yu's non-compliance did not stop. In the fall of 2020, the BC Supreme Court ordered that Ms. Yu be evicted from her unit uh, by November 30th, 2020. Well, Nicole, thanks for that wonderful summary. I know I wrote the cases also, and I have to say that this thing all started in 2017, so it, it lasted for a long time. So I think we'll probably talk a bit about that later on. But uh, what were you thinking when you were reading the published decisions and uh, news articles about this case? Well, for sure that what you just mentioned, the time is striking. Um, thinking about how long 
you know, it took me just to read through it, but these people are living through it. So the neighbors concerned about uh, strangers, especially in the current times, the volume of strangers being um, in and out of the unit certainly understandably raised concerns, security concerns and safety concerns. Um, it would really be at times like living in a hotel for these people. So I certainly um, thought first about how long of a struggle and a battle that must have been. I also thought about the people involved in trying to ensure compliance or gain compliance, mainly the volunteer board um, that would have been involved in and out of court hearings, in and out of meetings to try to discuss how to deal with this. And just it really highlights the potential difficulty in enforcing compliance, unfortunately, uh, even at a level where you have uh, non-compliance orders from the city and court orders to try to force compliance, enforce compliance, it's still possible for an owner to continue to be defiant and irresponsible. Eventually mm -hmm. that will catch up with them and have consequences like it did for Miss Yu. But in the meantime, the community just has to wait and submit to the process. Those are good points. You know, reading this case to me reminds me of how how tedious the pro as you said how tedious the process is and I, I can I'll completely understand like when I deal with these types of files and the actions of an owner or a resident is negatively affecting others that it can be very very frustrating for those other residents and neighbors to continue to be subjected to the non-compliance conduct for such a long period of time um, that's definitely an area that is of it's unfortunate, I would say. I think that's the best way to put it, is that it's kind of unfortunate. It also um, highlights for me um, uh, the nature of condominium ownership and how it's unique in this sense that your rights as a property owner are restricted by the responsibilities you have to the community. So where a freehold property owner can choose to rent, uh, as long as they're complying with the city bylaws, um, right. Airbnb or, or do with their property as they wish, in this instance, you're affecting other people's rights as well. So you really have a social contract in addition to the, the contract you have with the bylaws and, and condominium documents um, to adhere to those rules and responsibilities and to make sure that you're complying with those rules. Yeah, and, and that's a good point you raised, Nicole, is that I know that there's the idea of when you're buying a property that, okay, like my house, my house is my castle. And whatever I, I can do inside my castle is I can do those things subject to, obviously, what you said, the municipal bylaws and whatnot. But I think condominium living, it even though um, many condominiums, when you buy them, you are buying them freehold. There's definitely a difference in terms of what that type of living is. And I know that some a, lo a lot of purchasers, um, when they buy into a condo, they might not know that. And they might not know that even the conduct within a unit, which like technically in, in this use case, it was her conduct within her unit. Those can also be subject to various obligations and restrictions. And that's, I think, something uh, we're, all, we're constantly, I think, trying our industry to, to express to others in that, okay, like condominium living isn't really the same as your, your living in a single detached house or um, something of that nature. And another thing to me was that 
this is kind of like an exception to the rule in that Miss Yu obviously is a type of individual that wanted to fight this to the end. And because of the desire to fight it to the end, and I guess her her, her belief of obviously the court disagrees, but obviously her belief that she didn't do anything wrong, that caused the significant time that it took for the condominium in, or, sorry for the strata in this case to go from the beginning of the process to the end like in my experience most compliance matters don't go to such extreme lengths um most owners and residents you know as like in society are reasonable people if something happens usually it's taken care of relatively simply luckily it's very rare for such matters to be dealt with all the way to the end and requiring the court to actually order an eviction of the owner from the unit. Talking about this, um, I think it's now a good opportunity to kind of talk about how such a compliance process works in Ontario. Um, Nicole, are you able to give us like a brief rundown of how the process works? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a typical situation isn't quite like this, obviously. Um, so. Typically, you start with compliance letters. That is, the condominium or the strata in this case becomes aware of non-compliant behavior, usually through complaints from other residents or something of that nature. And once they become aware of this non-compliant behavior, either the board or the property manager, as the case may be, would send a letter just setting out, explaining what action is required from the owner to ensure that they're complying with the condominium's rules and regulations. Um, that often does result, surprisingly, in um, the non-compliant conduct stopping. Like you said, people are reasonable, and once they're informed of um, the problem, that may just be enough, and they may stop there. If it doesn't stop, however, a second letter may be necessary. This would again seek compliance from the owner, setting out the rules that they've breached or that they're breaching, and warn of potential consequences if the conduct does not stop and further action is required. Now, I know in BC, they have the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and in the UK, that's kind of the first step for Stratas. In Ontario, I know that we have the CAT. I love saying that, by the way. I love saying <laughs> the CAT. Um, <laughs> It's the condominium authority tribunal. Um, Nicole, is the cat, is the cat the same thing as what they have in BC or is it a little bit different? It's very similar. It seems like the same sort of platform intended to provide a more user-friendly process to resolve condominium or strata disputes. It does seem though like there is different jurisdictional issues that the civil resolution tribunal can deal with versus the condominium authority tribunal here in Ontario. Um, their jurisdiction here in Ontario was just expanded recently. However, it doesn't look like this would necessarily be heard in its entirety at the CAT um, because of the rental aspect. That looks like it would it would fall outside of the CAT's current jurisdiction over disputes. Um, however, it is still the next step generally in seeking compliance over issues involving pets and animals, vehicles, parking or storage, and chargebacks relating to those issues. So after the compliance letters were sent 
If further action was required, the next step would be the Condominium Authority Tribunal here in Ontario, or in BC, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, as in the UK. Okay, so that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. There is okay. some, if they're non-compliance, for uh, example, misused non-compliance with respect to her pets, um, that she had two dogs instead of one, or even perhaps that she was renting or advertising a pet sitting service, that could fall under the Condominium Authority Tribunal's pets um, jurisdiction. This is something you'd have to examine sort of on a case-by-case -case basis to see if first where um, the issue falls and if it falls in Ontario in the Condominium Authority Tribunal's jurisdiction, that would be your first recourse after the compliance letter. If it's outside of that jurisdiction or if you go through the CAT process and you still haven't um, obtained compliance from the unit owner, your next step would be um, court, the, the Ontario Superior Court in Ontario. An application may be necessary uh, to secure compliance, which could ultimately, after quite a bit of time, as you can see in the UK, lead to the sale of the unit and eviction of the resident or owner. David, can you take us through how uh, a compliance issue would be heard from start to finish? Yeah, no problem. Um, so it, it obviously depends on the nature of the non-compliance. But generally speaking, when the corporation discovers that there is an issue of non-compliance, I guess the, the first real step is to actually talk with the person, uh, whether that is the resident or in some cases, if it's the tenant, the, the, the landlord or the owner of the unit. And that can be done just through um, uh, yeah, verbally. Sometimes that's done through uh, letters from the property manager. Um, there's a whole bunch of different ways. And it, obviously, there's also other mechanisms involved. For example, if there's a noise issue, sometimes condominiums um, have their own mechanisms to deal with that through a reporting mechanism and administrative charges or call bylaw. If first efforts don't work, the next step, typically speaking, is a letter from legal counsel. Um, the letter kind of outlines basically the information related to the noncompliance. Um, typically, we like when I write them, I also include um, the relevant authorities. So that would be provisions from the Condominium Act and provisions from the corporation's own governing documents, and to tell the uh, the owner or sometimes the resident as well, the basis for their non-compliance and the specific provisions that they are in breach of. Now, most of the time, the compliance letter does the trick um, and uh, the issue is resolved. But if, unfortunately, the issue is not resolved, the next step could be to go to the CAT. Um, if, if the dispute falls within the narrow scope that a CAT currently can deal with, or alternatively, uh, a, an application for compliance. Um, I won't talk too much about the CAT since uh, the, their jurisdiction is fairly narrow so far. Um, but if listeners are curious, they can always go to the Condominium Authority of Ontario's website to learn more about the CAT. And I'm sure we'll, in a future episode, talk uh, more in depth about how the CAT works and uh, the issues that they've been hearing recently. With respect to the compliance application portion, 
Um, it is commenced, as Nicole, you said, it is commenced at the superior court. It isn't the same as your run-of-the-mill court action. Like, for example, um, the, the stuff you can see in the shows where, um, I don't know, uh, someone got, gets injured and then they sue somebody and then they go to court and they have a trial. A court application is a more quicker process. Most of the time, the evidence is brought forward to the judge in writing. The doc, the evidence is usually documentary in nature. And the time from beginning to end isn't the same as what a trial could be. Now, I've, I've gotten some questions before about why a compliance letter is necessary. So the, the purpose of the compliance letter is to basically bring forward to the resident or the owner's attention as to their non-compliance. In most cases, it is a precondition to a court application because when we, like when I represent clients and when I go in front of a judge for a compliance matter, you want to show to the judge that we've done everything we could to resolve it before bringing the matter to court. And so that's why compliance letters are necessary and they're important because you always want to make sure that you take the least expensive and fastest approach to try and resolve uh, disputes and non-compliant issues. And that's kind of how it goes. Now, in Ontario, there, the, the mechanisms in Ontario to deal with court applications are set out for condominiums in, under the Condominium Act. And there are protections in place that allow condominiums to recover all reasonable expenses related to dealing with a compliance application. And those provisions are in place to protect innocent owners because at the end of the day, uh, innocent owners shouldn't really be paying for the expenses incurred to deal with a non-compliant owner and or their tenant. One question I got asked once, and I thought it's a really good question because um, as lawyers, sometimes we kind of oversee it, uh, especially since uh, many of us have gone out of law school for several years. Uh, one question I get asked is, if owners who are non-compliant are able to fight along the process in a compliance application, and as a result, things could get delayed for several years, like what's the point of passing bylaws or passing rules or making amendments to your governing documents? And, and I thought when I received that question, I thought that's a really good question because as lawyers, our job is to help our clients through the obstacles and the rapids of the legal world. And most of the time we do our work through writing whether that's letters or, or pleadings, or also we've all obviously prepare uh, governing documents for condominiums or, or amendments to governing documents. And when I got that question, it made me think like, yeah, like what, what, what is the point? Because, you know, like as we saw in this case with Miss Yu, she might have disagreed with her noncompliance, but her actions were clearly, as founded by the court, clearly noncompliant to the Stratus governing documents. And yet, the governing documents in this case could not prevent Ms. Yu from fighting the process, causing the Strata to incur costs. Obviously, of course, most of the costs have now been repaid through the sale of Ms. Yu's unit. And 
you know, just causing a lot of distress for everybody involved. And, you know, like looking at that, looking at the situation with Miss Yu and, and, and thinking about the question I got from the client, I thought, that's a good question. Why is it that we, we, we write those governing documents and we write those wording? And at the end of the day, like my answer to that question is that it is very similar to the contracts that we all get into. So, you know, like we, when we get a new telephone, we sign a contract. Uh, when we buy something, you know, when we purchase a house, we sign a contract. Most of the time, uh, most of us in society, we follow the words of the, of the contract because, because it helps facilitate the function of our society. And we recognize that when we sign something of that nature, we have an obligation to follow those uh, responsibilities. And in the condominium context, it's extremely similar. When, uh, an, when a purchaser purchases a, a unit in a condominium, they are agreeing because when you're purchasing, especially in Ontario, when you purchase a unit, you get uh, disclosure documents and you're able to um, review governing documents of the condominium corporation. At least you're, you're able to and th- theoretically you're supposed to. So when you buy into a condo, you are necessarily agreeing on a contractual basis to the provisions of that condominium corporation. Now, what happens if somebody disagrees or somebody is non-compliant, such as the case with Miss Yu? Just like in almost every other case of breach of contract, the only way to enforce breaches of contract is through a judicial process. And in this case, it is through a compliance application. So then it, it comes back to, okay, then what's the point of having those documents and those writings in there in the first place? Well, the purpose of having those provisions in is because it explicitly shows to any third party, so a judge or, or a tribunal member, the wishes of that community on how they want that community to function and to operate and for the residents to live. And so if we bring a compliance application, for example, to court of an issue about short-term rentals, and we don't have a rule or something in the governing documents prohibiting short-term rentals, then it becomes very difficult to kind of get a compliance order preventing short-term rentals because we don't have such an, such an arrangement in the governing documents itself. So yes, unfortunately, if we get into a situation where an owner or a resident fights the process and refuses to comply, yes, unfortunately, things do take time. But it is still very important to make sure that the governing documents of your economy and corporation is updated and is reflective of the wishes of the community and covers every uh, covers as many aspects of how your community wants to live in that aspect. Now, there are provisions in the condo ad that has a bit has has more broader meaning. So, for example, the biggest example is Section 117, which deals with dangerous activities. Um, that provision can cover a whole bunch of different things. So, dangerous activities could include, you know, like the most obvious things, um, you know, dangerous activities. But it could also include things that we've dealt with, such as um, swearing, glaring at other people. Obviously, there's ha- the facts have to be of a certain 
certain way for for it to kind of trigger that. But those are some of the other things that, at least in Ontario, the Ontario courts have interpreted to be all, to also include uh, within the definition of section 117. And then uh, I also have one other thing that I was thinking about when I was um, reading the cases was like, what's the point? Like, why should a condo corporation get involved in these types of matters, particularly if, for example, the, the issue of non-compliance isn't affecting that many owners or it's only affecting one resident? And the answer to that is that condo corporations in Ontario are statutorily obligated to enforce their governing documents and the act. Um, furthermore, condominium corporations are required to manage the common elements and um, other aspects of the property. And so, yes, it may be a case where the owner could just be, I don't know, um, harassing one other person at the, con at the community. But that type of action within a condominium context requires the intervention of the condominium corporation itself because of its uh, statutory obligations. So that's also something that uh, condominium corporations and boards have to take into account as well. Um, sorry, I'm going on a bit of a rant. <laughs> Nicole, did you have anything to add? No, I think those were great points. I can certainly see that um, the, the bylaws, as you point out, provide that certainty and predictability and that support so that if enforcement of this nature, as in misuse cases needed down the road, you have that as backup. Whereas if you didn't have those um, bylaws and you were only left to the statutory grounds on which to seek compliance, you may be left without a remedy. Yeah, and I think one point I forgot to mention was having those governing documents in place is kind of, and, and also if you have to deal with a compliance issue the compliance letters that's the groundwork that's the stuff that's the meat and potatoes that we need that ultimately at, when we go to a hearing that's the strongest pieces of evidence and support we have to get those compliance orders one other thing that i i thought i would talk about when reading the uk's and that deals with the time that things take um, the UK case is a good example of, of, of how long these things can take, because ultimately, in this case, Miss Yu was evicted. And, you know, in, in Canada, in a Western society, forcing somebody to leave their own property and, and taking that property, liter literally taking that property kind of away from the owner and selling it, forcing that sale, it's an extreme remedy. It's, it's not very common for it to happen. Now, obviously... There, you do see it sometimes in mortgage issues for some, like foreclosures, but this is a situation where that person, like Miss Yu, basically lost her unit because of her behavior. And because of the nature of this type of remedy, there's a high threshold uh, that's required by the court. So that's why you saw, you know, courts taking a very long time for over several years, and the courts gave Miss Yu several opportunities to comply with the governing documents, several opportunities to try and resolve it. You know, Miss Yu could have left the community herself, but she chose not to, and she chose not to follow the rules of that community. And, you know, things did take a lot of time, but ultimately she was evicted. And so that's, I think, one other thing I'm, I sympathize. It can be extremely tiring. It can be a lot of work through these processes. 
uh, sometimes things may not seem to be moving because of how slow the legal system could be. But the reason why the process is so extensive is because the ultimate ending is the eviction of somebody from their from their own home or the forcible sale of somebody's property without their consent. And because of the nature of such a remedy, I can definitely see why courts are very hesitant and they want to try and provide as much opportunity as they can to not go that way. And so if there's condominium corporations out there that are dealing with such issues and these issues are taking a very long time to resolve, I my like my my kind of comment would be to try and just keep going. Because as you saw with the view case, at the end of the day, in these types of situations where the non-compliance is so clear and so egregious. At the end of the day, the, the law will catch up. The law will get there and the community will get the results they need. Like I've seen it before where it seems like it's futile to keep going. But once you get there, that's when the solution, the permanent solution comes in. So it's just a matter of just being patient with the process and getting through it. Compliance issues can be a bit heavy sometimes. So um, for those condominium corporations that have issues such as uh, non-compliance issues, I encourage you to go talk to a lawyer about it to get specific uh, comments and advice. Obviously, we're, today we are talking about it from a very high level and generally speaking, but each situation can be very different. So I, I definitely encourage everybody if they need to, to speak to their own legal counsel about it. Nicole, thanks so much again for coming on the show today thank you um, so much it was an interesting yeah. case an interesting read yeah fun fact like i i'm from bc so this case <laughs> uh, and i follow bc news so when i saw this case i'm like okay i have to talk about it on a podcast episode like <laughs> it's perfect it's a perfect example of what a compliance proceeding is although it, it is from bc but given that it's on the news i thought it was it would be a great example so um yeah. hopefully next time when you're on we can talk about something perhaps a bit less heavy <laughs> a bit less heavy maybe a bit more fun because uh, i know condos have fun topics as well such as who pays for the cost of these types of proceedings and whether mediation or arbitration is ever an option thank you for listening to this episode you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app condopedia is brought to you by davidson who allen a boutique condominium law firm servicing eastern ontario you can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.